The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the second day of our winter seven-day session. It's the 30th of June, 2019. And we're going to continue reading from uh, the path to Bodhidharma and specifically the chapter um, on Bodhidharma's outline of practice. And we'll continue where we left off um, with some uh, background stories um, about Bodhidharma, founder of the Chan School, School of Zen. So we left off where um, uh, Bodhi, Bodhidharma had um, uh, left behind uh, Emperor Wu and travelled north to um, a mountain upon which there was a, a monastery, Shaolin. It is said that at this temple, Shaolin, Bodhidharma just sat for nine years, but probably he did not simply sit. For at this temple he had a student, Hui Ke, the second Chinese ancestor. If Bodhidharma had not raised a disciple, the Dharma would not have continued, or at least not the, the, the Zen Dharma. Many guests came to the temple with questions for Bodhidharma, the answer to which he left in a collection of writings. One brief part of those writings is his Ninyu Shigyon Kan, that's the text we're looking at, um, uh, the outline of practice, also known as the, on the twofold entrance to the Tao, or the two entrances and the four practices. So clearly Bodhidharma was not just doing Zazen. And thinking um, <clears throat> it's good to remember when we're looking at these stories um, that they are they are mythical, and so it's. Um, highly likely that they've been the, the story has been simplified pared down to its essentials um, and in fact at times uh, exaggerated for a dramatic effect goes on about here about Hui Ke as a young monk Hui Ke was a scholar he had studied for many years and mastered the scriptures but in his heart, he was never able to be secure. Dissatisfied with what he could discover through his intellect, he went to see Bodhidharma to ask for his help and guidance. This, this um, statement that he was in his heart, he was never able to be secure. This, this means is never able to be um, truly at rest, at peace. Uh, 
it's it's important that we're there we're honest with ourselves about about this and um not kind of um, push it down if we if we have this sense of of not being at rest because it can become the thing that fu- fuels our practice there are there are particular things that that stir us up and we may have have one or two that are uh, particularly strong for us in the in the buddhist teaching there are these uh, particularly disturbing things are uh, gathered into a little, little um, group for us called the eight worldly winds pain and pleasure loss and gain blame and praise ill repute and fame so so each of the, the first of these pairings we we fear and try to avoid pain loss blame bad reputation and then the the other half of these dyads pre- pleasure gain praise and fame we seek to acquire or hold on to if we already have them and and all of these um we we kind of sink into our sense of self our sense of self is always trying to establish itself in something and the things it tries to establish itself in are completely unstable and unreliable like these eight you just take take an example of, of one of these gain and loss we 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 fear um losing what we have we we feel maybe feel great when when we acquire something that we want but really we're not we're not special or superior or in any way if we do get what we want we've just got what we wanted and equally <clears throat> we're not really diminished or deficient if we don't get what we want it's just that we didn't get what we want so the self looks for play, for for something that can um bolster it and he- help it to feel solid and and real and it does it does this because 
it is itself tenuous, unstable. The source of our all our unease. Actually, it doesn't exist. It's a, it's something we 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 fabricate. So we put a lot of a lot of energy into trying to defend something that is ultimately without substance. And so we don't we, we there's always this nagging uh, sense of insecurity. It's because it's like we're investing all our, our all our life energy in something that is inherently unreliable. So Hui Ke had got to a place where he he really saw this, this this sense of insecurity. He saw it clearly. And he felt it in spite of his many years of mastering the teachings. So he made the journey to Shaolin Temple and approached Bodhidharma for his help, asked him for his help. Bodhidharma was a very strict master and very strict on himself. No matter how much physical strain or suffering he experienced, he never took his mind off the wall in front of him. He sat and sat facing the wall. But he was not wasting a minute in doing this. He was in the true practice of no gaps. In our daily life, we leave many pauses unfilled. For Bodhidharma, it was natural to return immediately to the cushion, to return immediately to Zazen, after a meal, after completing a task, whenever there was open time. So, and though he may not have literally sat facing a wall uh, uninterruptedly for nine years, um, as the legend has it, um, this 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 legend may have come out of um, this admiration people had for his continuous practice. Shadowharada adds, throughout the ages, many Buddhists have lived this way, so that the Zazen, the Zazen is always continuing in life and back on the cushion. Um, our our Sishin schedule um, allows for this kind of continuous practice. The, the silence, the, the keeping our eyes down, structure of the day. So um, Harada Roshi is encouraging us here to use the open time well in Sishin, whether it's it's in yaza or or rest periods or moving from one thing to another, getting up from from Zazen and starting Kinhin. 
putting on our shoes, going to the bathroom. When I first did, did Sishin at, uh, at the Zen Centre in Rochester, I was um, amazed to see how many people sat through the rest periods. I couldn't imagine doing that at the time, going, experiencing a lot of tiredness and, and soreness, and yet here are all these people sitting strongly in the, in the lunch break, in the dinner break. Many words have been written describing the suffering state of Hui Ke when he went to call on Bodhidharma at Shaolin in early December. In the area of China near Beijing, the weather is extremely cold at that time of the year. Yet on that winter evening, Hui Ke stood outside Bodhidharma's cave in the blowing snow. It is, it is said that Bodhidharma did his nine years of sitting um, in a cave, and if you go to Shaolin, um, uh, sometimes you can get um, guided up the, in the mountain behind the temple to the, to the cave where Bodhidharma is said to have sat. So Kweko was stood outside Bodhidharma's cave in the blowing snow. His studies had been thorough, but he still had doubt. He had practiced Sazen for eight years, but he could not find the solace in his practice that he was looking for. He had heard of Bodhidharma's arrival in China, and that he taught not any special morality or any special virtue, but only sitting, facing the wall. And of course this facing the wall is is facing ourselves, facing our own painful thoughts, our own habit patterns, our, our clenching of the mind, all of it, all of everything that is hard to face. When Haika arrived, Bodhidharma was sitting as usual on his cushion. It snowed and snowed, but Bodhidharma just sat quietly without even turning around. And Haika waited, standing in the snow that was piling up nearly to his waist. He made his best efforts at that time, his greatest efforts, to cut all of his thoughts off, to be ready to finally encounter the true teaching. Finally, Bodhidharma asked him, You have long been standing in the snow. What are you here for? What are you seeking? Huayka replied, I came to learn the true Dharma. I came to find true faith. Please, Master, have compassion and teach me. Teach me the truth. In tears he pleaded with Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma then said, The true path is not easy to get to. You will not get there just like that. With all your knowledge in your head, you will never get there. 
With only belief you will never get there. The truth is at the source of all beings. But if any shadow of information and learning is still there, you will never be able to see it. It's best that you stop your searching right now. Ouch! What a strong slap in the face he appears to be giving to Hui Ke. Basically, he's, he seems to be saying, you, you, you haven't got what you takes. Go away. Of course, he's, it's a test. How will Huayka respond to such a, uh, a, a, a statement? The encounter is recorded in the transmission of lamp, the lamp, but we do not know how accurate the account really is. The story was most likely embellished. It continues saying that Huayka then took a knife out of his pocket and having let go of all attachments to his body, cut off his left arm and presented it to Bodhidharma. We do not know if this really happened, but we do know that Huay Ke was very sincere when he travelled to find Bodhidharma, and that he was indeed ready to put his life on the line. Uh, one one th writer I read ab uh, about this um, and I don't know how much this was based on facts because we, we really don't know very much about Huayka, but he suggested that um, he may have had, um, lost his arm in an accident, uh, but then became a very, a very fierce, um, powerful teacher, and then the, stories, the story was kind of like a backstory to f filling in uh, to capture his sense of, of um, fearlessness and, and rigor. Um, and certainly um, it's necessary in practice to develop this kind of attitude of um, relinquishing what needs to be relinquished. And it, it is possible that, that um, he did cut off his arm. We might think this is kind of a pathological act, um, uh, kind of bizarre and extreme. And certainly, in, in, in if some people did it, it would be. Um, I actually uh, heard a news item once years ago about a guy who had uh, cut off his hand using a chainsaw and put it in a mailer and sent it to some government department with which he'd had some kind of long-running um, dispute. And you can certainly look at that and, and see it as being pr pretty crazy. Um, but it all depends what's behind it. Um, a few years ago there was a film that came out that was uh, a depiction of the story of a young guy, climber, who had um, gone rock climbing without telling anybody where he was going and then had, um, I think he was 
abseiling down into a crevasse and just managed to dislodge a large boulder which um, ended up uh, pinning him at the bottom of this crevasse. The, the boulder um, landed on his arm and so he was he was completely trapped in this crevasse. Nobody knew where he was, and with his with his arm uh, crushed under this boulder. And eventually, um, he he took his his penknife and cut himself loose. He had had a, uh, a dream while he was down at the bottom of this crevasse of, of holding his son. And at that point he wasn't even in a relationship, let alone did he have a family. But this, this, this dream image, this vision of um, his family was one of the things that, that motivated him to, to cut himself free from in other words, cut off his arm to get to get free. And when we see it from this perspective, it's it's clear it's 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 clear that uh, to lose an arm in order to um, keep one's life to live, it's 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 not even something you would maybe debate. You just if you were in that situation, it's situation. Eventually, you would get to the point where you would do it because it made sense. And so we could we can understand Huayka's act if he if he did it as being for his infinite life that he so longed to to know with intimately what what's an arm in, in comparison to. S this truth that, that can't be taken from us. So one way or another, um, Waker um, showed Bodhidharma that he was, he meant business, that he was serious. Hueko, through eight years of doing Zazen, had deepened to a place that we can hardly understand nowadays. But we know that at times we can feel the power of will and enthusiasm similar to his. It is difficult to manifest that will for practice. But a new monk in the monastery traditionally is taught something of his effort, this effort. He sits for days outside the gates, not being allowed in. Then when he is finally allowed inside the temple, he is put into a room where he must meditate for days, not knowing what will happen. He does not know when or how many times he will be thrown out of the temple again and forced to try to re-enter. A new monk entering the monastery is tested in this way for up to seven days. It is possible that this tradition, still followed today, derives from this legacy of Bodhidharma and Huayke and their first encounter. 
And I gather that this 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 tradition does still happen in uh, Japan, and there's there's a, a 20th century account of um, uh, Rinzai master. His name I'm just forgetting at the moment, but the book is called A Lesson in the in the extent of my own stupidity. It's a wonderful book, and um, uh, the master, eventual master of that book, tells the story of, of this when he was he came to the, the monastery. But except in a kind of highly formalized way, lasting just a day, I'm not aware of this practice um, continuing in the West, and. Um, if it did happen, it would probably be considered to be abusive. Um, people would 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 um, not likely stand for it and perhaps um, hold it up as as uh, abusive. And and it, it, you have to understand that the teaching methods, and this is certainly a, a teaching method. It's 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 pointing to the kind of uh, metal that is needed in order to to undertake Zen practice, um, that the teaching method needs to to match the um, the student. It, it's it, it it does in a sense become abusive if it's just going through the motions of a of an ancient tradition um, that that doesn't really um, work for um, a, a people from a culture who are um, just surrounded in, in, in comforts and enticements and um, the, the egos being being kind of massaged. By advertising all the time and and the emphasis on on on, on ease and efficiency and and um, all of this, so um, it's not surprising it's that it doesn't um, f feature in in uh, in the West, as far as I know. Quaker had asked Bodhidharma to teach him of the Buddha's mind and was unrelenting in showing his deep and true resolve. He had come to know that this mind of the Buddha was something no one else could give him. His thoughts were keeping him far away and he was desperate for help. Bodhidharma clearly knew that people often became discouraged and gave up before reaching the resolution of their practice, pulled away by their ideas mistaking them for the real thing. Or they became conceited and overly self-assured, straying far from the path to enlightenment. Um, becoming conceited and overly self-assured. Um, this, is, this is a kind of, uh, kind of armor that we put on. Um, which um, is a kind of protective mechanism for um, not for defending ourselves against our, our 
um, our pain, our own pain and others' pain. It's, it, it's a way of kind of reinforcing the self-delusion that we, that we invest so much in. When Bodhidharma saw Hui Ke cutting off his arm, he said to him, Buddhas, when they first seek after the truth, give no heed to their bodies for the sake of the Dharma. You have now cut off your arm before me and have shown your sincerity and your seeking. Hui Ke replied, Until now I have studied how to live. I have studied the, the Tao. I have studied the Sutras. And I know the path very well, but I am not satisfied deep inside. After all that endless study, I still cannot find true peace of mind anywhere. He was asking Bodhidharma for help, for the courage to awaken himself. Hueke was brilliant. Even as a child, he had been able to read the most difficult philosophical texts. Even when he was young, he was looking for some word of advice on awakening, but this is something that does not come easily. With a well-studied mind come images and ideas that are always blocking the true light. These ideas are not necessary. If you are settled in your heart, you do not have to think. You do not have to worry whether you exist or not. You do not have to pursue any such philosophical questions. This was Bodhidharma's truth. Waikur said to Bodhidharma, Your disciple's mind is not yet at peace. I beg of you, my teacher, please give it peace. Bodhidharma said, Bring your mind to me, and I will set it at rest. Bodhidharma's answer was so sharp, penetrating to the core, he tried to point Waikur to the root of all his problems. Waikur was wise in thought and words, and in using his head, but Bodhidharma did not allow any room for that at all. He cut through it, getting to the final place right away. Bodhidharma was always living with this life right out there on the line, without the slightest excess. If he, that had not been the case, he could not have answered like this. We do not know how long um, Huayke tried to do as he was asked. In other words, to find his mind. Eventually, he said to Bodhidharma, I have searched for the mind and it is finally unattainable. Now, in the story, it seems like these two things happen immediately. Bodhidharma says, give me your mind and I'll set it at rest. And then Huayke says, I, I've searched for my mind and it is finally unattainable or, or sometimes I've not been able to find it but it could have been days or weeks or months or years in between these two we don't know but in when he came back when Hueke returned and, 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 and said this to Bodhidharma, his mind had been scoured, 
by his questioning, by his searching. Bodhidharma replied, I have thoroughly set it at rest for you. Actually, we could say that it was it was really Huay Ke who had set it at rest. He got to the bottom and, and found nothing. At that moment, Huay Ke attained deep enlightenment. He realized his deepest mind. If he had not just gone through all of that pain, it would not have happened when Bodhidharma responded as he did. Huay Ke realized his own clear mind and in one moment melted his burden of doubt. Bodhidharma's words, I have thoroughly set it at rest for you, are clear. They are not the words of a scholar. It took Shakyamuni six years to attain this understanding. Before his enlightenment, Shakyamuni was taught by his last teacher that the true mind finally, in the end, has no thought. If we do not come to know this, we will never be able to appease our doubts. Yet Shakyamuni was able to see beyond this point. He had the energy to cut through all of his thoughts, yet he questioned deeper. What about daily life? When I go out into the world, what if I need food? And what about the mind then? The mind then cannot just be the mind of no thoughts. There must be something else. True, in the essence of the mind there is no thought, but this is not Shakyamuni's final realization. He knew he would have to work harder, work longer, and take it to the very end. It took Mumon Ekai six years to finally understand. He worked, uh, Mumon, who compiled the, the Mumon Khan, um, took six years to see into the Koan Mu. It took Huayke eight. It is not easy to understand the words of Bodhidharma. Huayke said, I have searched for the mind and it is finally unattainable. He had come to a very good pace, place and worked very hard or he would not have been able to say this. It took him many years to reach this place. Perhaps the shadows were all gone and his thoughts had all disappeared. Perhaps there was nothing left there. He had comprehended this point and Bodhidharma saw this purity. Huayke had reached the very roots of his mind and when he approached Bodhidharma and said, he had reached the very roots of his mind when he approached Bodhidharma and said, I have searched for the mind and it is finally unattainable. Then Bodhidharma said, I have thoroughly set it at rest for you. There, that is it. If you look there, that is it. Bodhidharma cut right through what remained of, of Huayke's thoughts. We all have to be able to achieve that clear cutting edge of Bodhidharma. No body, no mind, nothing anywhere, nothing but that clear place. I have thoroughly set it at rest for you.
It is that simple. As Shakyamuni was also teaching us, if we meet, meet that true source completely, if we know our true living minds, then no thoughts are necessary. And actually there's, there's a moment in each day when we can get, get an inkling of what uh, Bodhidharma and Shoto Harada are talking about. Right when we wake up in the morning, there can be a moment, very fleeting, before our whole um, thinking engine kicks in. This, this, this vast, open, luminous mind isn't something we have to acquire from something. It's there. It's just that it's covered over with, as, as Shakespeare put it, the pale cast of thought. Now, now we will return to, to our text. The as outline of practice. We just reread the, the first part. So there, he he divides. Um, the ways in which we can enter into two main um, divisions. One is entering through principle and one through practice. The first entrance to the path is by reason or through principle. Entering through the principle is awakening to the essence, waiting to the essential by means of the teachings. It requires a profound trust that all living beings, both enlightened and ordinary, share the same true nature, which is obscured and unseen due only to mistaken perception. If you turn from the false to the true, dwelling steadily in wall contemplation, there is no self or other, and ordinary people and sages are one and the same. You abide unmoving and unwavering, never again confused by written teachings. Complete, ineffable accord with the principle is without discrimination, still effortless. This is called entering through the principle. So he's talking here about um, this very direct apprehension of the essential, our true nature. There is a phrase, to hear one and understand ten. This refers to an ability to grasp, without words of explanation, exactly what is being said. When those of true, deep practice hear just a bit, right away they know the whole thing and exactly how to proceed. The first way is to go directly, straightforwardly, without looking around, needing no prompts, no zazen, just aiming for Kensho 
with no other needs whatsoever. Rinzai never said to do Zazen, only to realize Kensho, this is Rinzai's Zen. If we do not do it now, if we do not attain enlightenment at this very time, then for the infinite amount of a time that exists, the mind of the Buddha with which we are all endowed will never be awakened to. This is said by Rinzai very severely and very clearly. He said, only go ahead directly and straightforwardly and you will know without asking how each day should be lived. If we can reach that understanding once, we will understand the rest without problems. This is the first entrance of which Bodhidharma speaks. This is how the sixth patriarch did it. The sixth patriarch, um, Huaynang, um, emphasizes in his, his teaching this, this sudden, direct apprehension of the truth. Um, and it, it, it um, can happen seemingly without any kind of preparation or cultivation. Um, it's how it appears. And, and it's, this is possible because this, this true nature of, our, of ours is like, is like the ground under, under our feet. We, we can't miss it. We're all proof of its perfect functioning, moment by moment. And so this is, this is, this is really what this, this, this sudden awakening is, is based on. And so there are, there are all these, these stories of the ancient masters. Um, we, might, we might think that they're, they're um, perhaps they were true then, but somehow they're not now. Um, but actually, there are examples of, uh, we could call them um, spontaneous awakenings. People who've um, never practiced in 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 what we could conventionally say is practice. Um, I think it's in the Zen Dawn in the West. Uh, Roshi Kaplow talks about um, a man who who coming back after the war who was filled with with doubts about. Um, having experienced all the, 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 the cruelty and, and chaos of the war. And this Christian came to him strongly, very, very, very strongly. What is reality? What is reality? And he, he, he found this Christian gripping him more and more as he just went about his, his um, daily tasks and um, reached a point where this it, this this question had had gripped him, and finally it kind of burst, and he he saw the uh, insubstantiality of everything. Another example is um, Flora Courtois, who was um, a young girl in a in a university in Midwest in the forties, who. Um, had a had a deep awakening experience 
um, but didn't didn't know what had happened to her, and for years was trying was was um, she did a psychology degree and and all really in the effort to try and to come up with some kind of way of understanding what had happened to her as a, as a seventeen-year-old sitting on the edge of her bed in the. Um, uh, in her rented room in the house where she was was working as a kind of a maid as she went to university. And eventually she met Yasutani Roshi and he confirmed her her experience. There's a little book, an account of, of this this uh, awakening experience. And then more recently um, two two examples come to mind. Um, some of you may have, have read the writings of, of Eckhart Tolle, who um, had a, an awakening when in, in the uh, coming out of the depths of depression, suicidal depression, and suddenly his whole whole world was um, turned upside down. Um, and now, now he he's um, teaches others, and uh, another another similar similar kind of um, thing is uh, uh, Byron Katie, Californian woman who who um, had an awakening at I think about the age of forty five or so. Uh, and up to that point, she had been in a terrible state: depression, agoraphobia. She couldn't go outside. She, she was highly paranoid. Um, and yet, there was clearly there was there was a, a, a concentration of energies going on in in her, in her struggles with with life that that led to. Um, very deep opening, and out of that, she's developed a, a a kind of method which has helped many people since a kind of inquiry. Can you hear the Dharma of this very moment? What is there to listen to right now? Is there the Dharma in people's explanations? Right here, right now, hearing the drum go boom, hearing the ring of the sutra gong, or even the sound of the book page turning. What is it that hears this? Directly and completely experience that, and then there will be nothing left to seek, for your whole life will, you will live as a true person. Rinzai taught this time and again. That which hears the boom of the drum, this is neither a man nor a woman, young nor old, rich nor poor, neither scholar nor an uneducated person, not square and not round, not red and not white, 
It is simply one true person of no rank, and only that. It is not form or substance and has no standing at all. It is that which becomes our eyes and sees, becomes our ears and hears, becomes our nose and smells, and becomes our mouth and tastes. It is that which becomes our hands and can hold things, becomes our feet and can carry our body. Rinzai would say, do you still not understand? We do not experience Kensho merely from our energy of the way, nor can we experience it from not trying anything at all. This is the, this is the, the, the paradox. It's not something that we, that we can will into existence, this, this opening. Um, but we can, can prepare the ground If our Zazen power is strong, we will attain enlightenment without fail. This is how it works. But it will not do to make Kensho into a concept. The, the, the word Kensho may be constantly on our tongues or in our minds, but if we think there is some kind of change waiting to happen to us, or that we will become some kind of other person, then we are in for a big surprise. Instead, our mind becomes perfectly clear. That which is speaking, hearing and seeing, just as it is, is Kensho. This mind, we cannot see it, but we know it. First and foremost, if you realize your original nature, the way that things should be done in society will become clear and obvious. This is, he's talking here about if we thoroughly realize our original nature, if we, if we thoroughly see into who and what we are, then everything flows from that. The second entrance Bodhidharma speaks of can be found within our daily lives, eating, going to the bathroom, moving our arms and legs. We can realize it in life's very midst, this entering through practice or entering through conduct. And if our conduct is truly correct conduct, then we naturally enter through the principle as well. So to... Um, to really conduct ourselves in accord with the Dharma is also a direct way, a direct path. And to, to know this direct path, we, we need to become direct, to, to to simplify ourselves. 
My, my teacher would often say to me in Doksan, become a moo fool. Become as, as innocent as a newborn baby. Just wide open. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to return. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org. Dot org dot nz